This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show for Friday, August 12th. Derek Van Riper here, Keith Law, still on vacation, so I have some help from my friends. Al Melchior will join me for the entire episode, and then we'll have Alec Lewis, the Royals beat writer from The Athletic, join us. We're going to talk about a few teams in the American League that are in different stages of rebuilds. And Al, we are digging in today, first to the Tigers. They made the decision to fire Al Avila, who had taken on the executive vice president and general manager title. They let him go on Wednesday. You look back at what he's done over the time. He had the job. He started in that role back in August of 2015. The Tigers had one winning season under Avila's leadership. They finished at 77-85 and last season, and that was considered a pretty big step forward in the rebuild with the young talent they had coming up, in part because they went 37-34 and in the second half of the season. So, I guess we could start just by looking at what went wrong, right? Like what is actually going sideways in this Tigers rebuild? The big prospects here, we're expecting the arrival of Spencer Torkelson and Riley Green this season. Both of those players have debuted. I thought the Tigers did a good job staying patient with Spencer Torkelson really throughout the entire first half of the season, giving him a long run of everyday playing time. But he was one full win below replacement level over the first half of the season before finally getting demoted to Toledo. So let's start with Torkelson. I mean, how much of a setback is it that his rookie campaign has turned out this way so far? For him personally, it's I don't know that it is that much of a setback because when you look at Jared Kelnick, just to take one example, it's not an uncommon path for a prospect to struggle really badly uh, in the first season. So I think like the Tigers themselves, uh, we, you know, we uh, who are, you know, kind of as I was rooting for the Tigers to take a another step forward this year. They were a really interesting story in the second half in 2021. So uh, if, if you have anything invested in, in the Tigers, um, you know, doing well with this rebuild, I think it does make sense to be patient with Torkelson uh, because, it, it, you know, this this does happen. And it may have been a lot of pressure put on his shoulders because when you set forth the question, DVR, like you did, what what has gone wrong with this Tigers rebuild? The answer is everything. <laughs> everything. I mean, the maybe there are two exceptions uh in, in Tarek Skubal and Gregory Soto, but you know, you take away the ace and the closer. And everything's gone wrong. Uh, they brought Edward, Eduardo Rodriguez in, didn't pitch well, and then has been out of the rotation for the, the majority of the year on leave. And the, the other young pitching, I mean, Casey Mize, uh, Matt Manning, I mean, you're either talking you know, injuries or just coming up short. Um, just nothing went as planned. Nothing, nothing at all went as planned. The veterans that were there already, you know, Jonathan Scope, Robbie Grossman, didn't work out. Javier Baez brought in. He he didn't work out. Nothing went right, practically. Right. And I think when you look at the organization, you go individually to all these parts and say, okay, wait a minute. Spencer Torkelson, is he a bust? No. The, the expectation at the time he was drafted was that Torkelson was one of the safest college hitters that had come out of a draft class probably in the past decade. And he'd at least be 
an average regular and probably an above average regular whose only real drawback could be that he plays first base. I, mean, I know the Tigers tried third base with him, but it's pretty clear Spencer Torkelson is more of a first baseman. I look at some of the things that were happening in the underlying numbers. Torkelson only struck out 25.5% of the time before that demotion. We're talking about 83 games, just under 300 plate appearances. He drew a decent share of walks and 9.7% walk rate is good. This is a guy that was always a good patient hitter in the minors, handled every level he stopped at in 2021 with no real issues. Started at high A, stopped at double A briefly, and even finished the year at triple A and was better than league average everywhere. As he got promoted, he was a little closer to league average and he'd stop, but still finished 29% better than a league average hitter during his time in Toledo last year. And even this season, it's not going as well for him at the same level. It's been 18 games since he was demoted. He's striking out more at AAA Toledo than he was in the big leagues this season. And that, to me, is the sign of a player who's pressing, doing too much, trying to get back on the big league roster. It's going to happen eventually. Maybe by the end of the season, we'll see Torkelson again. I assume because the minor league season ends a few weeks before the major league one does, Torkelson probably comes back in September, if not sooner. If you need a success story that's somewhat nearby, I would say look at what Andrew Vaughn did in 2021 upon arrival. And he didn't have a 2020 season because he was in the minor leagues at that time. Made the leap from high A to the big leagues. Did a good job keeping the strikeouts in check. Hit 235 with a 309 OBP. Did pop 15 homers. Um, that was a disappointment to some people, given the lofty expectations that were placed on Vaughn. And a lot of the the questions around a rebuild go back to individual expectations and timing. And sometimes we expect too much too fast. Now, I'm not saying that the Tigers were wrong for making a change in the front office. It seemed like the writing was on the wall and this was almost an inevitable sort of change. But I'm with you. Everything that could have gone wrong this season with the roster has gone wrong. So I, was, I would look at Torkelson and say, yeah, it's a it's a setback, but he's still a long-term fixture for the next good Tigers team. And even Riley Green, his 2022 debut was delayed by a late spring foot injury. He would have been up probably the whole time with Torkelson or not long after opening day had everything gone well. I'm looking at Riley Green right now and saying, I like some of the underlying numbers. Torkelson also had the good O swing percentage when he was up, right? He wasn't chasing a lot of pitches outside the strike zone. That kind of backs up those plate skills I was talking about. With Riley Green, we're seeing a similarly mature approach for someone who's debuting as a 21-year-old. Green won't turn 22 until late September. So I think you can look at some of the process-related stats for both of these guys and feel really good in the face of some underwhelming slash lines. Yeah, and no, I think that's a good point about Green. And he's you know not been tearing it up in his first exposure to major league pitching, but definitely by by uh, comparison to Torkelson, decent decent rookie campaign so far. So something that he can build on, and you know it would just take some of the players who some of the same players likely will be back in in twenty twenty three, and it's just a, a question of uh, if you can get you know half of them to perform up to expectations, you're going to see a much much better team. I think the really challenging thing that the Tigers had in this rebuild the entire time was this core of young pitching. It was Casey Mize. It was Matt Manning. It was Tarek Skubal. Keith and I have talked about them at various points in the last year and change now. And it's funny how over time, when they were all healthy, 
the preferences for one over the other two would actually change quite a bit. Scooble at one point kind of seemed like he was the best prospect, even though Casey Mize went 1-1 in his draft class. And there were some people out there that always have preferred Manning because of his projectability. When you build around any group of young pitchers, you almost have this expectation that one will probably fall short of expectations. One will probably have to deal with the major injury. And then if one becomes the player you expect him to be, that's sort of like a median outcome with any three pitchers. And that's sort of where we're at right now, except I would say that Tarek Skubal is probably a level above expectations for where he was at a prospect. So as badly as it's gone with Mize having Tommy John and with Manning missing a lot of time this season, he's made four starts now at the big league level. I do think Skubal being as effective as he's been is the type of small victory that the Tigers really needed to get from that trio. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, so he, I think he's already settled in as an ace. And then it's just a question of my, it's not clear if he'll be back next year, but should get Spencer Turnbull back and figure he slots at least into the middle of the rotation. Eventually you get Mize back. Matt Manning's still very much a work in progress. And then uh, you, you got Reese Olsen, who's had a very, very good year in the minors and in Wilmer Flores as well. And even, uh, you know, somebody uh, who really wasn't uh, on my radar, but, um, you know, pitched well for a time this year, Rony Garcia. And he's been on the IL and not clear if we'll see him again this year. But there's, there's no lack of quality depth uh, for this organization. So... They've got the the bats in place, uh, and it's just a question of uh, you know hitters like Jamer Candelario. Is he going to rebound in in 2023? What kind of progress, as you've already raised, uh, is Riley Green Riley Green going to make in in Spencer Torkelson? So it's just a question of uh, all the arms staying healthy and the bats catching up to the arms. It's a bump in the road for sure, and I I think it's going to be interesting to see what direction they decide to go as they replace Avila. If they'll go with an internal candidate, or if they'll actually go outside the organization and bring in someone with some completely new ideas, some fresh perspectives, maybe about player development. There's a few things that really surprise me too when you look back at the Tigers over the past decade or so. Uh, Mike Illich, of course, passed away back in 2017, and his son Christopher assumed control of the club when that happened. And in the years since Mike passed away, they've been in this rebuild and they've been spending a lot less, usually kind of in the top of the bottom half of the league in payroll, right? Somewhere between 17th and 22nd in payroll. And that market 17th is happening right now in 2022. They spent on Javier Baez, like you mentioned before, and they spent on Eduardo Rodriguez in free agency. Plus, they're still in the final years of the long-term Miguel Cabrera deal. Miguel Cabrera accounts for $32 million on that Tigers payroll, which is sitting at $135 million right now. And you know, you imagine that Cabrera probably is off the books after 2023. I know he's got vesting options. I don't think he's going to reach those. So they still have one more year of Cabrera being there. But I wonder if this team will eventually get back to the point of spending like it did in the years prior to Mike Illich passing away because they were running a consistently high payroll. They were annually in the top five between 2012 and 2017. And when you think about the way the other clubs in the AL Central spend, that gives the Tigers a huge advantage because anybody running this organization a leg up potentially over the other four teams if, in fact, the Tigers are going to ever spend like that again. It seems kind of foolish to assume that, but... If they spend even 
somewhere in between those levels, if they spend like a top 10 payroll sort of team, that could also sort of stand out in the division. And it seemed like the Tigers were trending in that uh, direction this year with the Baez and Rodriguez signing. So that just seemed like a logical next step. Uh, but yeah, with the the change in the front office and with the uh, the team just falling way, way short of expectations this year. Uh, I think that that's really all up in the air in terms of uh, what we could expect for them to do this off season. The personal matters that have Eduardo Rodriguez away from the team. You can't foresee that it's random. There's, there's nothing about that that you can look at and say, they should have seen that coming. You should probably have expected Javier Baez to be an erratic player. Because we've seen this over the course of his career. We've seen flashes of an MVP candidate when it's going well. And we've seen a barely better than replacement level player when it's not. And he's on track to be about a win better than replacement this year. I wonder how much of his struggles this year are trying to earn every dollar of that contract he signed on every swing. If he's just pressing. Again, it's kind of like the pressure on Torkelson but on the person who was brought in to be the veteran, to be the the heart of the order, to be that player, I think is something that's really different. Baez was part of a core of great players with the Cubs and being just the guy is different. So I think that's one of those decisions when you look at the contract that Baez got, it was a six-year, $140 million contract. There were plenty of people that questioned that at the time. And, and maybe Baez was a, a second choice for them. Maybe they wanted to get Carlos Correa and they couldn't make it work. You know, we don't know for sure. But I do think Baez is the kind of player that could bounce back just because his natural variance is so wide. Even if he's not going to be MVP level Javier Baez again, I think you can get at least a, a better player than we saw in 2022. He could be among the reasons why next year's Tigers team ends up getting back on track. Again, not because he's four or five wins better than replacement, but because he's at least two to three wins above replacement. It's really hard to explain what's happened with him this year. Uh, you mentioned the the history of erratic performance, but that was always more of like a month to month kind of thing. You know, a few weeks here, a few weeks there, very streaky. Uh, he's actually been pretty consistent this year, just not in a good way. Uh, and I don't recall any previous uh, season like this where there wasn't at least some part of the year where um, he looked like that MVP cal- caliber uh, type player. So I suppose you're probably right that maybe it is just that bias is pressing. Um, maybe there's just something in the organizational shift to the Tigers that just is taking some time for him to acclimate to. Uh, you know, Maybe we'll find out eventually. But at this point, you just have to figure that for a player who should be really in, in the prime of his career, um, that he should bounce back next year. There are a few things that have, have gone right, I think, in the bullpen. Gregory Soto has taken a step forward. I think Joe Jimenez has actually pitched really well. He's a guy that I had high expectations for a few years ago, and those are are being met now and better late than never. Uh, on the prospect side, you know, Wilmer Flores has been a great pitching prospect for them this year. Reese Olsen, who they acquired from the Brewers in a trade uh, actually is having a nice season in the minors as well. Maybe Colt Keith ends up being a future regular in their infield. And then Jace Young fell to 12th overall in the draft in July. That could end up being a nice value for them too because he looks like another impact bat that might be relatively quick to the big leagues, similar to a, a Torkelson sort of timetable. I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation for Young as a guy that was very productive in college. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, again, no guarantee that even if he is on the fast track that uh, he'll have a productive rookie season. But it was a good, uh, you know, it was was a good thing. uh, Some good fortune that young fell to them uh, where they were picking. And uh, yeah, there's there's some depth in the farm system, especially on the pitching side. And I I don't think that it's uh, necessarily a a time for Tigers fans to be as, as pessimistic as the results so far this year would indicate. I get the feeling, and this is just from being around Twitter a lot, that the decision to move on from Alavila is giving Tigers fans optimism that things will start to get a lot better because the decision-making processes will change. What needs to change before they're good again? I think player development is still lagging. I don't know if that's a disconnect between front office and coaching staff or not having the right people in place at multiple levels, but we have to see what other kinds of changes are made. You shouldn't have veterans like Baez struggling this much at the plate even though his k rate's down we're still talking about a guy that is swinging at pitches outside the zone more than ever and that's always been a problem Baez has always had an aggressive approach but this is the worst version of that approach that we're seeing right now the lack of development with torkelson you know green's early struggles which to me are, are just typical early struggles and then you know, having players like jamer candelario or even jonathan scope right a veteran holdover another guy that's been among the worst qualified regulars in baseball this year that shouldn't happen. That, to me, is an indication that something is wrong as far as the hitting instruction goes in Detroit. So hopefully for their sake, they can find a way to work that out. I do wonder if there's also something going on in their pitching development. It seems like they have more than the typical number of injuries between Mize, Spencer Turnbull, who you mentioned. I think Matthew Boyd got hurt while he was there. Matt Manning has already missed a lot of time with arm injuries. Bo Brisky is going through that right now as well. Uh, so maybe there's something going on there that needs to be remedied at some point as well let's shift the focus over to oakland though where the rebuild here has been a full-scale demolition here's a fun fact did you know or did you remember that the a's won 86 games in 2021 it seems much longer ago (laughs) yeah it really does right i mean a, a ton of trades matt chapman matt olson Frankie Montas, it's it's to me a clearly sort of different approach than what we saw Cincinnati do. Uh, the way the Reds have been rebuilding is the way that makes sense in my head. You're getting impact players who currently play up the middle and on the left side of the infield, and you'll figure out where they all play later, and hopefully you hit on a very high number of them, and maybe even you trade some of those guys for pitching later. That totally makes sense as the, the path that you'd want to follow. With the A's, you can look back at some of the big trades they've made and kind of scratch your head and say, wow, I know they were trying to replenish a depleted farm system. So maybe getting extra players, getting four players back instead of three, you know, sacrificing a little bit of, of ceiling with the, the best player in the return to get someone else back. Maybe that was really important to them. But this is a harder rebuild to explain as a baseball analyst, harder to explain to your fans too, because it's just, it's more difficult to see it getting better quickly. So I ask, what has gone right for the 2022 Oakland A's in the early stages of a pretty big teardown? Well, yeah, not, not a lot this year. And unlike with the, the Tigers and again, yeah, it's a bit of a shock to remember that they're just a year removed from that 86 win season, but I don't think uh, anybody would see their record now and 
go back to their March version of themselves and say, oh, this is this is a shock. So not much has gone right, but there's not much that you would have expected uh, to go right. If I'd say, if anything, you know, Ramon Laureano has uh, had a, a little bit of a bounce back. And that's yeah, that's important because they don't have too many tradable players left. And I don't know how much that they could get for Laureano at this point, but, you know, that certainly gives them a little something more than you might have expected back in, in the offseason. Um, Sean Murphy has continued to develop. Um, he's obviously another tradable player. A lot of us expected that he would have been not an Oakland athletic by now. So uh, I'd say that maybe those are some of the the better things that have happened uh, for the A's. The the bullpen, there have been, been some bright spots. Uh, Danny Jimenez. Uh, before he uh, strained his shoulder, was looking like a really solid closer for them and somebody maybe who could hold that role for a while. Uh, of course, in his absence, that whole closer question really got thrown open again, and, and A.J. Puck has uh, made made his presence known as part of that mix. Uh, Paul Blackburn has been a very nice, pleasant surprise. I would say Cole Irvin has, too, uh, and neither one is... Uh, you know, going to be I mean, Blackburn was the team's all-star. He wouldn't have been an all-star most likely on, on just about any other squad, but he really took a, a legitimate step forward this year, became a, a decent strikeout pitcher after really just relying on ground balls in the past and that not really uh, being uh, very uh, effective for him. So uh, he's become a, a better pitcher, but they, they still are very far from having an ace. So the positives that you can point to are really small ones. And when you look at what what it would take for the A's to be a better organization, again, they, they would need to convert some some veterans into prospects and, and higher-end prospects than the ones that they've gotten in recent deals. And I don't know that Murphy and Loriano are going to be be the ones uh, that, that are going to really uh, allow that to happen. So I think Murphy gives them one more really good trade chip because he's still a relatively young catcher. He'll turn 28 in October. So kind of right around that peak. He's a great defender. You know, Offensively, we've seen the K rate come down this year. He's always done a good job barreling the ball. His career barrel rate's 11.3%. He's living right by that number so far this year. I think it makes a lot of sense to trade him now. I think with the A's being very frugal with their payroll and Murphy being arbitration eligible, you know, you get to that point and say, okay, well, hey, well, let's see if we can get three or four more players back in this return. And, and part of the reason you do that too is because one of the players you got back, the headliner of the trade that you made that sent Matt Olson to Atlanta, is Shea Langoliers. And Shea Langoliers is also a good defensive catcher. And I know you can make an argument that it's fine to take someone like Murphy and Langoliers and have them share the catching role, but then have the other player play some first base or DH and just keep both bats in the lineup. That's still not really ideal when you think about the number of teams that would want a catcher like Sean Murphy behind the plate for 120 plus games. And you think about the possibility of maybe getting some of the up the middle talent that you're missing, right? The thing about this A's system is there's a few more impact arms in there now because of the Frankie Montas trade, but it doesn't have that list of of shortstops and third basemen that you look at and say, yes, those are tooled up guys that are going to be definite impact guys in the long run that's what's missing so if they could find a player like that in a sean murphy trade i think that would go a really long way for them there's a couple other things that could really be a big deal i think gunner hoagland being healthy coming off tommy john surgery starting to pitch in game situations again 
he could fly up prospect rankings. Once he shows he has the stuff he had pre-surgery, I think that's what's going to happen. And people are going to quickly regard him as maybe the best arm in this system. And I think it's interesting, too, because whether you read you know, Keith or you'd like to read stuff over at Fangraphs or Baseball America, you can find some pretty varying opinions about the ceiling of both Ken Waldachuk and Luis Medina, who came back in the Montas trade. I think it was Eric Longenhagen of Fangraphs, who was a little higher than the field on um, both of those guys. So you can sort of talk yourself into the A's possibly having three young impact starters that are, are better than the Blackburn Irvin types. And there's a few other young guys they've traded for who fit more into that Blackburn Irvin mold that could end up chewing up a lot of innings as back-end starters. But I do think they finally have some ceiling with the pitchers in the organization after all these trades. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, you know, that would be a place for them to build on. I think it would definitely be more of a strength in the next uh, year or two than they're than they're hitting. Uh, although I think Zach Geloff probably is not too far away. Maybe we see him next season. Langoliers, we will probably see at some point this year. Uh, David Forrest going on uh, an A's podcast and saying that he really wants to see Langoliers up with the team. For, for a good period of time before the end of the season to see see how he does against major league pitching. So not it's not something that's going to elevate them, obviously, uh, this season, but at least you, you get a sense maybe of, of how he does perform at the major league level, and maybe it also emboldens the A's to, um, to, to trade Sean Murphy in the offseason. And the one thing they do have as far as up-the-middle prospects, as we've already discussed catching. They've got a lot of it. Daniel Susak was their first rounder. He's a college catcher. He's going to stay behind the plate. Another possible impact bat there. We'll see how he develops as he eventually moves up in the system. Um, you know, you look at the the Fangraphs system rankings, which are constantly updated. A's are currently sitting 17th, so mid-pack. It's an improvement for sure. I think the critics will say, for the talent they traded away, they should probably be a little bit higher, but they're clearly doing it in their own mold, uh, favoring some different types of players compared to a lot of the other teams dealing for players. I do wonder, you know, in the what else needs to change before they're good again, it would go a long way if Christian Pache can hit enough to be in the lineup on a regular basis. I am just increasingly skeptical of his bat because we're now reaching the point he'll be 24 in November. Spending a lot of time back at AAA again this year, the results really haven't been great given how much time he's already spent at the level. It's a 259, 322, 389 line. The good news is he is walking a bit, 8.3% walk rate. It's nice to see from Pache, 22.3% K rate. You could live with that, but it's a 77 WRC plus. And I mean, we're talking about a guy who's been 23% worse than league average with the bat while going back to the, to the AAA level for part of the third season, that gives me a lot of doubts about his long-term viability against top-level pitching, even though in theory he's still young enough to figure it out. We're still talking about a guy that has only 286 career plate appearances at the big league level. 
it, you know, when you say you're skeptical, I, I almost feel like that's maybe being a, a little generous because it, this is, yeah, this is not a recent phenomenon. Like you say, three different seasons, uh, parts of three different seasons in AAA has yet to be an above average uh, offensive producer in any of those seasons at AAA. It took him his second go around at AA to have a good season. That's really the last time that we saw some offensive promise uh, from, from Peche and um at this point, I'm not sure what you're even going on to project that he's somebody who's going to be able to to either hit for average enough or hit with enough power to, to be a major league player. Um, I, I'm just not seeing it. So uh, and the defense uh, is, is just, I think, not going to be enough. The, the reason I have a little shred of optimism, this is it. This is the one thing I'm hanging my hat on right now. <laughs> Christian Pache had a 43.5% hard hit rate this season at the big league level. That is actually pretty good considering where he was previously during his brief time up with Atlanta last season. It's just enough to say, okay, he does make some hard contact. He hits the ball on the ground too much. There's something there to work with, but the further we go without him figuring that out in season at AAA, the less likely it seems like it's going to happen at the big league level in the future. You might be talking about a guy that's on the roster for his defense, plays most of the time because of his glove, but is stuck clearly as a prototypical number nine hitter. And that's just not what you were hoping for, betting on those tools. But again, getting him as part of that trade, a lot also hinges on Langoliers and the two pitchers they got back in that trade as well. Uh, one other thought here too, right? If you think the system is a little bit low in those rankings, the A's are going to pick really early in that 2023 draft. They're contenders for the number one overall pick based on how they're built right now. Probably not picking much lower than three. So they're going to have a really big draft ahead of them in 2023. And depending on how the pieces fall, that could also propel this system up quite a bit in short order. Yeah, uh, they're really going to have to make the most out of that draft uh, because, again, the lack of tradable players... Uh, the, the lack of high-end prospects currently in the system. Uh, it's going to be a critically important draft for them. Ace fans deserve better. They just do. Let's check in on a rebuild that seems to be going well. At least recently, things look pretty good. And to do that, we bring in our Royals beat writer, Alec Lewis. Alec, thanks for joining the show. Yeah, of course. Thank you guys for having me. It has been, it's been a, I mean, a roller coaster. And I feel like um, after another game today that the Royals won, they've won two four game series in a row for the first time since 2014. I mean, it's a party <laughs> around here. I mean, people are, people are excited about Patrick Mahomes, understandably, but they, people are all in on this young Royals team at the moment, which has been a, a departure from the beginning of the season. So it's been good. Thanks for having me. The young core is exciting, right? Bobby Witt Jr. coming up at the beginning of the season. I think everybody was excited about that around baseball. Uh, MJ Melendez and Vinny Pasquantino, if you follow this team, you've been waiting on them for a few years. They're up now. Nick Prado is there too. And maybe even Michael Massey, who's come up but recently, has some kind of future role on the next great Royals team as well. Just starting with Witt in particular, it seems like he's made the adjustments as fast as you can hope a young player makes the adjustments. We were talking about Spencer Torkelson earlier, and I think the Tigers were right to be as patient as they were with him. I thought Witt could go through some similar growing pains because of the swing and miss we saw in his game in the minor leagues. So you see Witt all the time. How did he make these adjustments so quickly to become you know, one of the game's best young shortstops? 
Yeah, it's fascinating. I mean, in May, I believe mid-May, by that point, he had struggled to hit fastballs. And that it was surprising to people within the organization, I think, just because of the damage he's done on fastballs and did on fastballs throughout the minor leagues. And so, as I mean, I think I remember looking at run value in May and uh, Bobby against fastballs, and he was like negative eight. It was just pretty surprising. I, there was a bench coach for another team who was like, we're just going to attack him at the top of the zone with fastballs, and they did. And then in mid-May, the Royals obviously had a had a coaching change with hitting coach and fired Terry Bradshaw, brought in Alex Zumwalt, who's been around a lot of these guys going back to the alternate site in 2019. And from there, I mean, I think they shifted Bobby's contact points a little bit, and it, he just kind of took off. Um, I mean, there have been some elements of his game that are just uh, so sustainable in terms of his speed. I mean, he's he's – the fast, one of the fastest players in baseball by sprint speed metrics. I mean, um, just the, the the pop when he does make contact. So it was just a matter of of hit tool. And I think with him, there's also he's had some errors defensively, and and some of the defensive metrics are kind of glaring. But he's also made the types of plays that I think everybody expected. So it kind of reminds me a little bit of like. Fernando Tatis Jr. of just being so capable defensively that you try to that he's tried to do so much. But I think the the hitting, he's just a guy cognitively who's at a really elite level. And then from a physical standpoint, um, he can do some things that are pretty wild. Well, Alec, the last time I think I talked to you, I was asking you, do you have any insight on what's taking so long for Vinny Pasquantino to get the call? I know you must have been so tired of t- talking about that and writing about that. So I'm sure it's it's a relief to you. But I'm interested in what your thoughts are and, and what kinds of things you're hearing uh, in the organization about Pasquantino now that he's up. Because to me, I look at the profile and it's incredibly encouraging that so many of the skills that you saw in the minor leagues have been intact in the major leagues. It's just not translating into the same kind of results so far. Yeah, I mean, we're talking on a day where he faced Dylan Cease and I think worked like a seven-pitch plate appearance against him the first time and homered uh, on a on a Dylan Cease slider, slider down. And then he, I think, worked like another eight-pitch plate appearance walk in his second time around. So it was just like the classic Vinny, what we'd heard, what we talked about. And I think... Through his first few uh, weeks in the big leagues, I think the the thing is he's hit the ball extremely hard. And I believe that there's a statistic, too, that I, I think he's chasing uh, fewer pitches than any other rookie besides Stephen Kwan, if that tells you a little bit about his his play, to, uh, play discipline. And so you, you combine the hard hit uh, with that play discipline, and I think it just screams what's possible. He's hit the ball hard on the ground a lot to the pull side. And as a left-handed hitter with the shifts in this day and age, that's not going to work out. But in recent days, I mean, I think in the last two series, he's homered three times. He's just flashed the pop that I think we've all expected. And then, I mean, the the reality is you talk to anybody around here about what Vinny has done to this clubhouse. And I've seen it every day. Um, His personality, I mean, I was just watching Joey Votto, like his personality and comparing anybody like that is crazy, but he's just he's quintessentially himself and he's a fun personality and people gravitate towards him. So there are no concerns around here. I know with the the early Vinny numbers because of just some of the, the in the weeds metrics and just how he goes about his business every day. Yeah, it just seems like a, a great find for the Royals. I don't know how much they deserve from like a development perspective, how much credit they deserve. But nonetheless, he's doing everything you're looking for a young hitter to do. And that Quan stat alone is really interesting. You look at this whole group and 
I could say across the board, it seems like young position players have gone right. And I'd say on the pitching side, they've had one pretty big success story in Brady Singer. And the biggest knock, I think, on the Royals right now is their lack of consistency in developing their young pitching. So what's been the key to getting Brady Singer to this next level? Because this seems like a big step in the right direction for a part of the organization that really needs it. Yeah, there's no doubt. It is a huge thing. And Brady's kind of taking the baton of all of these young guys and I think pushed the boundary and, and some of the other young guys behind him have followed. For Brady, what's what's happened, I think, is beginning of the season, his his tilt was a little off with the way he was releasing his two-seam fastball. It was like hurting his control a little bit. They made an adjustment. Uh, he was in the bullpen to start, and then they optioned him. He built back up. He came back as a starter, and he's throwing the change up more. And from then on, it's just been <laughs> – it's like he's had something to prove after they optioned him to AAA Omaha. And I think the Royals executives would even say that. Like, he's come back with a vengeance. He's attacking guys, attacking the strike zone. Uh, he even said to me, like, I'm just not trying to be perfect. I mean, he has such great movement on the two-seamer, whether it picks up in the models or not. Uh, that he just has such good feel for throwing that pitch to any location that it's just worked. I mean, I I, wouldn't, I don't think I'll ever forget the, the outing he had in New York in Yankee Stadium and went seven innings, I think gave up only one run against that lineup. And, and like I said, I mean, for this organization with as many knocks as they've had on pitching development for right or wrong, for him to go out and, and kind of push the boundary forward for a guy like Chris Bubich, who has also been really good recently. It's been, it's been important for them. And I think it's also been probably if I'm, if I'm pegging the optimism surrounding this team right now, it's probably number one, just with, with, with how I think positive it is that a guy like Brady Singer is taking a step forward and doing it on a consistent basis every time out. Well, while we're talking about the rotation, uh, is there any reason for us to maybe expect a similar kind of uh, pro- progression for Daniel Lynch? Because when you look at what he's done this season, he's he's got great stuff. He is getting swings and misses at a, at a really good rate. Uh, but the one thing that, at least to me, really sticks out in the statistical profile is uh, he's getting behind hitters really frequently. The the fir- uh, first pitch strikes uh, a little bit south of 60%, which just you know, for most pitchers isn't going to get it done. Um, do you think it's just as simple as him just you know getting better command of that first pitch, uh, or are there more problems there? Yeah, I think you're on to something, Al, in terms of just attacking the strike zone, especially early on. I mean, it, that's that's been a key for Brady. It's been a key for, for Chris, and Daniel's talked about it as well. I mean, I will say with Daniel, earlier in the season, he dealt with a – he throws his slider so interesting. It's like a knuckle slider. And the way he throws – it's a gyro slider, but he, he, he holds it with his knuckle. And the way he holds it, 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 it created a blister earlier in the season – that they worked with and it, it sidelined him a little bit. Then he came back, there was a different cut on his finger. And so it's just been one of those years where a guy of his talent. And I mean, if you go back to prospect rankings, he's probably the highest uh, evaluated of the entire group. He just hasn't been able to consistently navigate through outings. I think in the past few weeks, he started to do that. He's his fastball has played at a level that I think is 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 higher than last year. And then there's been, there have been times where he hasn't had the feel of his best pitch, with which is a slider, and and he's navigated outings without that. But I think if he can can remain healthy, not deal with blisters or cuts or or, or the the like, um, and just have have his type of pitch mix that I think he expects to have. 
Um, there's definitely a reason for me to believe that that there could be a progression with him. He he believes a lot in himself, and that's not an arrogance. He just he, he knows the numbers. He sees them. He studies them. He, he studies. I mean, he had a long conversation weeks ago with Tark Scuba on the field. Them just talking pitching and and pitch grips and stuff. That's just who Daniel is, and so. Um, I think there are a lot of people around here expect him to kind of take a similar step that that Brady and Chris have taken. It's just when I look at, at Daniel Lynch, you watch him pitch, you look at his numbers and you say like the strikeout rate and the walk rate, they don't really go with the results. It's just like one adjustment seems like it could go a really long way for Daniel Lynch. If he can uh, make that happen, it could be a, a big, big leap for the rotation as a whole. Asa Lacey has barely pitched this year with a back injury, and I think that's another kind of key part to all of this, like making everything eventually come together because they expected an impact pitcher when they drafted him. And yeah, if you're hurt, you don't have a chance to even take that step forward. But when we've seen him, it's also looked as though he's much less of a finished product than expected back when he was drafted. Yeah, it, the Asa situation has been, I mean, just it's, it's, it's similar to Lynch, but like to the 10th degree in terms of he just has not, had any rhythm on the mound and it hasn't had the opportunity to pitch a ton of games on the mound and his control and his command. I mean, the, the walk rates right now are just kind of through the roof and at a level that's uh, raises red flag. I mean, I've talked to multiple scouts of other teams who have seen him, who have seen video of him. And I think there are some concerns about like the stiffness and just the lack of consistency. And, and um, so we'll see, but you, but you're right, Derek. I mean, when you, when you select that guy at number four in the draft in 2020, you're expecting him to just be a, a a starter, and if not a starter, you better be like a Josh Hader type at the back end, I would think, to select a guy that high. And so it's it's definitely been a tough go so far. It's one that I mean, I know Royals executives are, I have eyed uh, on a daily basis. It's it's one that they're not uh, immune to to paying attention to and trying to get right. Um, so we'll see how it goes, but it's just been a rough stretch. I mean, you mentioned the back injury last year. There was a shoulder um, type of hiccup. And so it just, I, I think some of the stiffness with his body might be contributing to some of those. And we'll just see how, how it plays out. But it's it's an important one that people here have their eye on for sure. Well, beyond Lacey, uh, there are some other prospects who haven't uh, been in this latest wave of, of promotions. It seems like they could be playing a role uh, in, in 2023, is it going to be Nick Lofton's time uh, maybe to take over in center field? Anybody else that you see who maybe could either uh, make make an impact next year or at least give the Royals some more options? Yeah, Nick Lofton is definitely definitely a name that I think in the next year people here will, will see in the big leagues. I mean, I think the other talent that they acquired with, with the compensation pick this year is Drew Waters. And I mean, obviously he was a top prospect with Atlanta. They acquired him for that comp pick. He came over. I know that first week, um, the Royals hitting development department, which has really fueled some of their progression on the hitting side with these young guys over the past uh, three years or so, had had meetings with Drew. I know they've kept tabs on him. He, his performance has been pretty good since he's been in Omaha. And I think if they could get him up this year, I think they might do it and just try to see how it goes. But I think he's probably more suited to play in center daily than a guy uh, like Nick, Nick Lofton. And I think the other guy who's been up right now, who's just very interesting because he was a 21st round pick 
in 2018 is, is Nate Eaton. I mean, he's he's been a guy that the Royals have loved for a long time. He's an outfielder with real, I mean, top of the line speed, top of the line arm. The bat is obviously going to tell, tell the tale of what he ultimately becomes, but he, he went to VMI, very, just a military background, very like disciplined player that um, the Royals and other scouts have liked for a long time. So a, a guy to watch, I think, moving forward that people probably aren't talking about as much as the other big name hitting prospects. What kind of timetable would you put on the Royals being a playoff team again? Is it unrealistic to expect them to at least be in contention for a wild card in 2023? And I guess baked into that question, what other assumptions can you make about how this team is going to change? Will they spend up? Could they be players for free agents that previously wouldn't have been an option for them? Will they run the payroll up a little bit and maybe address some of their pitching needs that way? Like, Is the window about to open or is it still another full year away from really being a time where this young core is going to be in contention? Well, the, I will say the Rose Brass talked about this year as a chance to potentially compete for a wild card spot. So to call next year unrealistic, I don't, I mean, I think it, it, next year, really, they need to be pushing toward that that point. You mentioned the payroll, and, and it does seem like they have some flexibility. I mean, Andrew Benatendi is no longer uh, on the books. Carlos Santana is no longer on the books with Merrifield. Um, so I think some of the guys they owe, it's it's a it's a Hunter Dozier, it's a Salvador Perez, uh, and then guys going through arbitration who will get paid more. But I, I do think they have money to spend, and I do think with if starters like Brady Singer and Chris Bubich and Daniel Lynch can continue to show over these next two months that that they could be consistent guys in a rotation in the middle and the back end i think it probably does open up the opportunity for for this front office to go to ownership and be like look if we can spin for this experienced veteran starter that 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 maybe have more in the tank than than Zach Rinky does why not do it. And I think if that's the case, then with this division and how crazy it is uh, right now, I think next year could be a, a possibility. If I were pegging it, I think 2024 seems seems most likely. But it, it's funny. And we've done this conversation that I, I, I haven't even really talked MJ Melendez up very much. And of, of all the young guys, to be honest with you, as impressive as Bobby's been all year and Vinny Pasquantino, I mean, MJ has is, is caught games. He's been leading off every day for the club. He's played in the outfield. He's hit a ton of home runs recently and, and just seems to uh, have have an elite approach. And when you have a guy like that, you have a guy like Salvador Perez, you have a Bobby Wood Jr. I think it, you can you can start to believe in your head that next year, or the year after um, you've got the core that that suits you well enough if you're willing to spend a little bit. So we'll see. But I, I think these next two years will be very telling without question. Yeah, our friend Ido Saris has said before, it takes three to have a, a true core for a franchise. And it looks like the Royals really do have that player. Melendez is so much more versatile than I expected. I just thought, typical catcher. And it's kind of strange having Sal there. But Sal becomes more of a DH at this point in his career. Melendez catches, and that's the whole story. But I've seen him play in the outfield a little bit. Much more athletic moving around out there. And the quality of the contact he makes is very good too. So I think you look at what he was doing at high A with the strikeout rate and the improvements he made in their system with that swing change. It's hard to find a player who got that much better from high A to the upper levels of the minor leagues in the past decade. The only other one seemingly that comes to mind is Nick Prado, who was literally on that Wilmington <laughs> 2019 team. And, and I've written a lot about just the, what they've done on the hitting side. And it, I was talking with an executive this weekend of another team who was like, they have been on the forefront in this avenue with what they've done. I mean, 
In 2019, Alex Zumwalt became the director of hitting performance. They hired in a guy, Drew Saylor, who was with the Dodgers, with the Pirates. And it's just um, they preached three, three mantras. Know thyself as a hitter. Take the pitches you can't hit hard and 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 swing at the ones you can and be a lead in our preparation. Those are their mantras, and that they act those out daily throughout the minor league system in a way that prepares them for this level. And we're seeing it. You mentioned quality of contact with MJ, but it seems like all these guys are are really impacting the ball every time they they pass it. And I, I don't feel like that's hyperbole. It's just been really impressive to watch them uh, every day. Yeah, optimizing swing decisions, valuable in a huge way. And the Royals are a good example of that right now. Alec, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, of course. Thank you guys for having me. I, I'm, I'm fired up. It's been fun. Uh, fired up to listen to all the rebuilds for sure. I think you should be because of the three teams we talked about on this episode, the Royals seem the closest to having it all figured out. That's going to do it for this episode of the Athletic Baseball Show. A huge thank you to Al Melchior for joining me on this show for the entire time as well. Find Al on Twitter at AlMelchiorBB. Find Alec on Twitter at Alec underscore Lewis. You can find me at Derek Van Riper. If you don't have a subscription to The Athletic, you should get one. It's a dollar a month at theathletic.com slash baseball show. That gets you in the door for the first six months. You can read all of Alec's great Royals coverage. You can read Cody Stavenhagen stuff on the Tigers, all of Al's fantasy content, and it's fantasy football season, too, around the corner. So we have all that covered as well. Thanks for listening. The Athletic Baseball Show returns on Monday.